So I got my Pebble Watch. It's awesome. Yeah, I saw Chris's. Uh, is it really awesome? It is. I mean, it's. It, I, I kind of. It, there's not a whole lot to play with. Like you can play with the music app for about twenty seconds, mm-hmm. and then once you realise that it can play and skip through uh, through any music, like any sound app. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, it kind of loses that loses a bit of interest, and then it's like, okay, well, I'll use that when I actually want to listen to music and stuff. And then, really, the only other thing that you can do is, uh, like, you can download Watch Faces and play Snake. And uh, no, but can't you also? So I saw on Chris's he had um, Twitter notifications. Yeah, but you like that? That's awesome if you receive any notifications. But right. like, I'm not going to sit there and go send me t- tweets, please. Okay. We so, we so uh, you got to like wear, live with it for a while before you. Get to enjoy the full spectrum of benefits. Right, right. So it's not something that you get out of the box and you go, "Oh, I'm going to play with this for hours." Yeah, it's more of a like okay. Apple smartwatch, which you will clearly get out of the box and play with for hours. Well, that depends on whether they have apps available at launch or if they decide not to do it. I love the fact you just accept the premise that they're doing one. I look. I don't accept the premise that they're doing one. I assume that if they do one, that they'll do it well. Well, yeah, that's uh, a fair assumption. Uh, you know, I, I'd, I, or at least I'd like to think that it's going to be better than the, like, if they do one, it's going to be better than the, the Nano, which people were using as a watch and yeah. me included for a while. So if Apple or anyone else did like a nice smartwatch, I w- would probably get one and try and use it. But I've struggled to use a watch because I don't know. I've got watches, but I never wear them. Um, cause I don't like, like, don't like the feeling of something on my wrist, I often will take it off when I need to type or something and then forget to put it back on or things like that. Yeah. But um, I don't really understand the benefit of, like, so I've got something in my pocket mm-hmm. that will vibrate to yep. draw my attention to when I receive emails yep. or that I can quickly pull out and look at if I need to know something, like someone sent me an email or the, a mention on Twitter or whatever. Yep. So I don't really understand why having something on my wrist is a huge leap ahead of having something in my pocket. Like, it just seems... Okay, it's probably easier to glance at my wrist than it is to put my hand in my pocket and pull something out and glance at it, but, like, only marginally. And I'm kind of thinking maybe the proposition of Google Glass or something like that is a clearer increase in benefit in terms of, um, you know, something being readily accessible when yeah. I need it. Well, yeah, the, see, the, th- the difference between, say, a watch and Google Glass is that Google Glass is far more like a Bluetooth headset, and I feel like... You mean in the, you look like a bit of a twat when you wear it? yeah. And I feel like until they get it to the point where it looks like a regular pair of glasses and it doesn't look like a computer, it will be people will kind of think that you're a bit of a, a, a yeah. jerk. And, and actually, to be honest, I don't really want all of that information about what's going on around me or what's going on online in my field of view constantly. But there are specific times when I do. Oh, it'd be useful. Like, it'd certainly be, be useful to be able to go, okay, glass, you know, do this and just have it suddenly come on and, and do that. But in, if it's going to be showing stuff all but, the time, I think that would just be distracting. So, the main time I find myself wanting, like, hands-free access to information on the internet is, say, when I'm driving. Yep. So, I'm kind of would be more interested in, like, a heads-up display in my car. Um, or Google, better, Google windshield. Yeah, or, or Siri integration with a display in the car so I could actually... Mm, the iPhone would continue to be the, the smarts that I use. I have zero interest in a watch or glasses or anything like that. A heads-up display in your car? 
Well, in, in the car would be good, but every day, just information all the time. The cool thing, I one use case for Google Glasses that I'd quite like is it's got a camera as well, doesn't it? Yeah, so you could uh, be you can walking tell uh, walking along the street, and you have that moment where you recognize someone, and you see that they recognize you, and then you just go, "Crap, crap, crap! Who is that person? How do I know that person? Are they going to recognize me and say hello? <laughs> is it going to come to me before they get to me?" You could just quickly say, "Glass, who is that?" And they could like because that won't that won't be awkward at all. That's jelly. Yeah. Glass, you go, ah, glass, jelly. Glass, they're getting close. Glass, tell me quick. Yeah. Who's this person? <laughs> Who's that person? He's right in front of me, Glass. <laughs> and he's like, hi, hang on. <laughs> hi, jelly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I, I like I, I'm keen to play with Google Glass because I, I just like playing with new toys. I'm a bit of a gadget fan. I mean, this, I mean, all of these but, things are certainly the future, right? Like, the trend here is towards computing being more ubiquitous. Yeah. So more and more of the devices we have around us uh, will have more and more computing power in them and more and more of them will be networked to be able to talk to one another. And that's kind of cool. So- well, I certainly hope so. I, I have I have this kind of fear that we're going to get stuck in this place where, where all the co- different companies are all kind of working on their own little, uh, little you know, universes where all their devices talk to each other, but they don't talk to, you know, other devices. Yeah, so Pebble's Without, kind of a bit except of a- for a, you know, except for the the choice few where you know, for instance, you can get your Gmail on your on your iPhone. Yeah. But you know, it's far more integrated, say, uh, when you use iCloud Mail. Right. Um, so, for example, you would sounds like you'd be the sort of person that would hope that Apple would open up Siri, for example, to allow third party. Oh, absolutely. Integration, so that you could use Apple's. I reckon of- Siri would be so much more useful if it could be used with any app. Yeah. Um. Because there are in, there are implementations that Apple is never going to think of mm. that some third party developer is going to go. I could use it for that, mm. which is exactly why uh, the App Store has done so well. Because, I mean, as as an example, Apple's was never going to you know build an app for iView or a you know thing that tells you uh, how big your baby is in, uh, compared to the size of a piece of fruit. Well, I hope not. <laughs> <You're> <laughs> screwed. Know, or, you know, or in my case, a, a you know, piece of, uh, you know, an app that shows you, uh, you know, music charts as you, in the method that makes it easy for you to play them. Like it's, that's not something that Apple's interested in doing. Yeah. So the approach they took with the iPhone originally seems to be they did the integrated solution in the first instance. And part of me always wonders, did they intend from the outset to allow third party apps or was it actually an afterthought? And I kind of think maybe the truth lies somewhere in between that um, their focus was on providing the product and experience that they'd envisaged. Yeah. Perhaps always with a view that they'd move beyond that eventually. But then, you know, turns out they did move beyond that and open it up and allow third-party apps and provide, you know, great tools for building them. So maybe they'll take that same approach with whatever, you know, with Siri or what other new technologies they well, hopefully, I'll take that approach with Siri. Hmm. What's the appeal of Siri? I don't get it. Well, who, who talks to their phone? You guys talk to your phone? Well, it's, I think it's more helpful seen, when you. I've never seen anybody talk to their phone. I use it when I'm driving. I do it discreetly. You think I'm talking to someone on my phone, but really, I'm just having a conversation with Siri. Siri, who is that guy? <laughs> <laughs> Tell me who that guy is, quick. She often tells me, sorry, she can't do that right now and needs to get back to me. Like, the process of using Siri, I find frustrating. Oh, yeah. 
There are and so many things that could improve Siri. But I use it when I'm driving a lot, just to um, if I receive a text message when I'm driving and I want to know if it's important, do I need to stop what I'm doing to respond or can I just get back to that person later? I ask her to read it to me. Um, sometimes I send text messages using Siri if I really need to, uh, although it takes about 10 times before she can recognize right. who what I'm trying to say. Yes. Reminders are good because it doesn't matter that she gets it wrong because you just say, you know, remind me I need to buy milk when I get home and or when I leave home. And then you're driving out of the driveway and you get a little reminder that says, I don't know, you need some silk. That works for you? Yeah, well, the fact that it reminds me something. Like it doesn't, she often doesn't actually remind me the thing that I asked her to remind me. But, but the fact that she's reminding me something reminds me that I wanted to remember a thing. Yeah, it's like that It's like that old trick of putting an envelope in the steering wheel somewhere. And or string around your finger. Well, it's just like something random and you go, why, why is, is that there? there? Oh. oh, right, the milk. Yeah, yeah, okay. And it's not even like, uh, how does that even correlate? Like it doesn't really even... Poor, yeah, si- poor Siri has a real hard time with Australian street names. Yeah, she does. It's quite funny. And bad. suburb names. I feel bad for her. Yeah. And what names? Suburb names. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, she she always says, like, Gungalin to me. Yeah, and Manuka. <laughs> yeah. yeah. North- well, that's tip. That's actually so- how it's supposed to be pronounced. Right. Yeah. For non-Canberrans. It's yeah, if you go, if you go to, like, Manuka in, uh, in the UK, it's Manuka. Manuka. But here it's Manuka. Just because, yeah. Actually, that got me out for the first couple of years I lived in Canberra. Mon- Mon- I was calling it Manuka, Manuka, and people would just look at me. No one would correct you. Yeah. No, just and help, and help you. <laughs> Two years, you look like an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what are we still doing? Yeah. It's actually Monica. Mon- oh, is Monica. It? Yeah. yeah. Oh. What a difference. It's been a long time since we were last here together. It has been. Well, we missed we missed out on uh, on our recording session last week for this week. So, we're a little bit behind. Uh, so holidays got in the way, the beach. And look, I, I blame I blame you two because you, you guys all you, you guys chuffed off to the beach. I assume together you know, just figured you'd have have a little little holiday by yourselves, and uh, it was lovely. And yeah, good, good. I'm glad. I'm glad that you had a lovely lovely time together. It was very nice. <laughs> Sorry, oh, did you want to come next time? Uh, next time, maybe. So, <laughs> uh, you know, but obviously we're we're a little bit late in actually releasing this. Uh, so you know, I'd like to apologise, and that that's mainly the reason for, for for why that happened. But of course, I'm assuming that anyone that might have wanted to listen to whatever we have to say. Uh, might have also been having some time off and holidaying. So it's very perhaps, possible. Perhaps uh, you wouldn't have had an opportunity to listen to our dulcet tones anyway. Turns out Easter is the sort of time where people want to go away and do things. And- uh, apparently less so elsewhere. Like, So I've got a friend who's recently moved from Australia to the States and she was lamenting that um, Easter was less of a big deal where she was, that she didn't have as many public holidays or you don't as many get, Easter eggs. You don't get the buttons. four days that you get here. Right. So, and with four days comes lots of opportunity for chocolate and hot cross buns and whatever else takes your fancy. The the four day weekend is you know exponentially bigger than the three day weekend, mm. which is exponentially bigger than the two day weekend. Mm. So, what do you get in the states for Easter? Maybe a day off if you're lucky. We don't really do holidays that well over there, except for Thanksgiving. Or even, but even that is like one day. No, you do get the Thursday and Friday. Okay, that's that's probably the big four day 
weekend. Yeah. Any excuse will do. Mm. Give us a long weekend. Mm. We'll gladly take it. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Indeed. Mm. So uh, what have you guys been up to in the time since we last spoke? How is uh, Cute Fruit going? Cute Fruit's doing pretty good. Fantastic. About, about as expected. So slowly growing each day. Happy with it. And uh, you mentioned last time we spoke that uh, it's a free app. That's correct. Did you Would you like to talk a little bit about how you plan on making a buck from it? Because I assume you're not just creating apps from... Just for, from the good of my heart? Yeah. Well, um, that obviously plays a role, right? But it's unsustainable. Not you really. A, you got to, it doesn't play a role at all. <laughs> okay. It's a purely yeah. a cynical financial exercise. So, uh, do you want to share with no, us? No, it's, it's an experiment. It's... Uh, you know, trying to do that thing where you get users and then figure out how to make money. You know, the hated model of uh, I don't, production. I don't, don't know that it's entirely hated. I mean, I think it's pretty widespread. No, right? I, I have, I do have some plans. So there, there's space for ads within it, mm-hmm. and it's sort of targeted ads. I got a targeted audience, and then also merchandise. Merchandise have, is going to be the big one. Have you um read about App Cubby's experience with? I think it was with Launch Center, where the app was at one point a paid app, then it became free and acquired lots and lots more users, and it was free with no ads in it. And then an update introduced uh, either an in-app purchase or an ad. No, it was an ad. An update introduced an ad. Yeah. I think and, that was Timer. Okay. And there was- well, It was not uh, happy. Yeah. People, people responded really badly, even though they hadn't paid for the app on the whole. Most people had got it whilst it was free. They react really badly yeah. to a free app suddenly kind of changing the ground rules under them and starting to advertise at them. Yeah. Because of that, almost solely because of that, I introduced this app with uh, ad space from the very beginning. All right. Even though I'm not necessarily advertising anything except my own apps. Okay. But One of them is a link to Facebook to like us, that sort of thing. Yeah. So you- but, but the space is there. So if I do introduce ads in the future, it's not a shock to people who have already been using it. Yeah. So it's about setting expectations. Exactly. Yeah. It's interesting. It's great being able to learn from other people's experiences. Learning Learnings. And not have to learn it yourself fresh each time. Yeah. Um, AppCabby is good because um, David does share a lot of his experiences. Yeah. Learned yeah. a lot from, from that. Which is great. Speaking of learning, um, something I wanted to talk about today uh, was where you guys learn stuff about programming and developing apps. Um. So, for example, maybe I could go first. Uh, one of the places I learn is a, a website called NS Hipster. I don't know if you, do either of you know about NS Hipster. I do. I think it is a, a publication of a, uh, someone you're a fan of, Matt with three T's. Is that? I think Matt is behind NS Hipster. Um, and it's a great website. So it, it basically, um, seeks to, Shine the light on one feature of Coco each regular publication cycle, week, month. I don't know. I only visit it sort of every sporadically. So there's always new stuff when I go. Um, and it kind of talks, focuses on one area of the Coco frameworks that might be a little obscure or might be something that you hadn't used before. Or, um, I guess it's not, not entirely like really obscure stuff. It's usually stuff that's useful and readily applicable. Um, but it's a great spot to go and read about stuff that you mightn't already know about. So, as an example, I was just reading NS Hipster this morning, uh, and read, reminded, was reminded about, uh, NS Array's support for 
key value coding operators, uh, which is something I'd actually encountered years ago in web objects, um, where you can ask an array for a value for, for a key path, and you can pass a string that is a key path for items in that array, and as well as doing things like um, asking for, say, you've got a complex object in that array, and it has a property called name, you'd go, oh, you know, person.name, and you'd get the names of all of the people in your array back. Um, you can also use operators, so the user um, ampersand, uh, or at, sorry, not ampersand, an at symbol, and you say um, array value for key path uh, at max dot person dot age, and if your array contains person objects that have an array, an age property, um, it'll find the person who has the maximum age and then return that. So uh, that's key value coding operators on NSRA. And it was something so I've completely forgotten about. In this about. case, that person would be you at 37? Allegedly. <laughs> Allegedly, 37. Yeah, that's something else that happened in the time since last episode. Um, the app I had previously mentioned that was in the App Store uh, had been accidentally released, but the client wasn't ready to publicize it. Yeah, the client is now ready to publicize it. So it was um, Forte an iPad app for the National Library of Australia lets you browse their digitised collection of sheet music and it got a little bit of press coverage um, last week where I was quoted as Jake McMullen, 37. Uh, just for the record, I am not 37. Younger. 37. He's much, much older than that. No. Anyway, <laughs> what does it matter? So so back to the uh, the original topic. Uh, how? Yeah, what do you, go, how, where how do you guys learn stuff? Learn stuff. Well, that's actually very interesting for me at the moment because at the moment I am beginning the work on a new app. Uh, this is not the comic app. Which oh, I'm, another new app. This is another new app. This is this is another. This is more progressions land where it's yeah you know, something that I'm doing f- mostly for myself. Yeah. Um. So this particular app is not a mobile app. It's a it's a like a OS X app. Like it's a desktop app. So, just uh, given that we were all decided it's polite to correct people's pronunciations, so you don't do it for years. I was ten. Yeah, so yeah. I was ten. I knew I knew you were going to say that as soon as you said you were going to correct me. Okay, sorry. Uh, it's an OS ten app, uh, and yeah, so I, I'm I'm now having to learn the differences, the the not so subtle differences between iOS and OS ten, and uh, yeah, that's um. Yeah, I can turning imagine. out to be interesting. So one of the things that I'm trying to do is that um, because all the projects that you have that you build, like that initially get built for, by Xcode, um, they they provide you with like a menu bar and a window, right? So you can you know then fill out and build more windows and you know do, do all that sort of stuff, um, add uh, add your preferences and all that sort of thing. Um, in my case, I want something that creates multiple instances of a window um right yeah like so learning how to do that has been interesting because like it's it's so it's it's sort of like basic level Mm. uh coco stuff and so it's not like you can just google for it and find you know find something in stack overflow because stack overflow assumes that you already know that um for the at least for the most part so it's been my trick has been going through the available uh, code that is available, you know, in the documentation. Uh, And I managed to stumble across uh, the source code for text edit. Oh, cool. Yeah. 
Of course. Um, which I didn't really know was there until now, but that essentially solves the problem uh, because they use they use NS document. Yeah, so I think there's actually a template from Xcode. You choose new document based application. Yeah, so you get I like a basic text edit style yeah, thing. Yeah. So I've realised that I've made a mistake. I have to go back and fix that. But, but yeah, I mean, in terms of where it's learning resources. So yeah. Apple's sample code. So the sample code, yeah, the sample code is, uh, is, is, has been pretty helpful there. And it's, cause I'm not the sort of person who's going to sit down and read about the stuff before I get started. I'm much better off going, oh crap, I made a mistake. Have to, you know, yeah. have to start again. Yeah. Then to, uh, you know, then to just to read about and go, okay, I really understand this now. I can just go and write it out. I reckon I'm probably somewhere in between those extremes in the sense that I've, I learn a lot by doing, but often what I'll do is approach a problem and try something, Yep. realize I don't know how to do it, and then go and seek out something that I can read at length. That just like Rather than just go to Stack Overflow where I find it a good way for, um, I guess, finding one particular approach to solve a specific instance of a problem, mm-hmm. but not so good if you're trying to understand the more general approach to things right. like um, how should I structure my code or how do I deal with, I don't know, client-server communications or how do I deal with caching stuff or whatever. Um, in those cases, I think Apple's documentation is really good. They've got so many, like the UI view controller reference, like there's like a two or three hundred page PDF that just talks about UI view controllers kind of in the abstract and then points you at the documentation for specific classes that you will need to use and talks right. about the view controller lifecycle and all of that. So rather than reading that kind of upfront before I write any code, I, I don't do that. I kind of, as you do, I get in there and start coding. Then when I hit, like I realize I'm, I don't know how to do it, I'll go and seek out something like that, read through it, try and get understanding of the whole high-level concepts, and then look for example, some sure. code or do- yeah. Yeah. Right, you. I'm with Jelly. I, I, my first step is always to seek out sample document, not documentation, sample code. Yeah. And Apple's website is great for that. I find because I'm, I'm not that great at writing code at the moment, but I can, like most people, you can read code. Mm-hmm. So you can look at it and see what's happening. Yep. So I find that as well. And that's, I think that's very important for me though, is reading the code. Like I, I do so much better if I'm not reading something that is abstract. I do so much better if I have something that I can go, oh, that's what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. I need something that I can I can link to what they're saying because otherwise it just doesn't match up in my head. Yeah, yeah. And I think that can, maybe comes down to like whether or not you're a visual person or whether you like how, how you learn things because yeah, there are, you know there's different ways to learn so yeah. there's you know visual and and kinetic and uh and you know from from words and stuff like that. Yeah. And I'm very much a visual person like I'm 100% visual. I uh, which is why I do a lot more design and art than say, uh, and podcasts. And, yeah. Podcasts, sound, sound related podcasts and code, which is all words. I'm, yeah. I'm a complicated man. Let's, let's be honest. But you know, that I, I find it much easier to have something that I can go, okay, that's what it means. Um, mm. you know, you know, they, that's what they're doing and that's exactly how they're actually doing it. Uh, than just going, okay, that sort of makes sense. You know, if you look at it from a really high, mm. like a high level point of view, that doesn't really necessarily mean anything. Yeah, yeah. So, did you did, when you were in school? Did your math books have the um, the problems, the answers in the back of the book? Yes, 
Yes, indeed. That's kind of my sample code. Go <laughs> <laughs> straight, straight to the back of the book and like, oh, oh, okay, oh, right. that's, that's how you do that's it. That's how I do it. Yeah, good. That's easy. Yeah. <laughs> now I'll just now uh, I get it. <laughs> yeah, now I'll do it from memory. Uh, yeah, no, my my books didn't have that. They were in they were in a separate book. All right. I didn't that I didn't have hard. that have that. I, I sucked at maths. Let's be honest. I was terrible at maths, which again is why I've been programming. Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's good. It's good. I'm not going to admit to having failed year eleven maths. <laughs> I think you just did. Hang on. Oh, <laughs> I think. Yeah. So, uh, so this past fortnight, a little over a fortnight, uh, I released some uh, some code on GitHub. Uh, it's called Keyboard, spelt Q U A Y board. All right. So it's like you know. Keyboard, yeah. bit, bit of a play. Yeah, uh, circular keyboard. Yeah, so uh, it's and it kind of makes sense. Do, I, I, do I kind of any of the post rationalize people get that because it's Quayboard, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I keep I keep thinking of it as Quayboard when I have to write it, but yeah. it's it's keyboard. It's keyboard because it's pronounced but the same I way. Think as you'll like find a, that most of your U.S. listeners will be pronouncing it Quayboard. Oh, Quayboard. They there, are no, there are no keys in the U.S. What about? I don't think so. Key like, Biscayne key. Is that in Florida? Is that not spelt with Florida, a K? Like Florida Keys. Because it's like a... It's like, oh, the K. Not as in Quay. It could just be me. I, I, I could be the idiot, but... No, it does look like Quay. I'll, 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 be, I'll be honest. But it is it is key. Right. And it's like... Because like circular key in right. Sydney. Is, circular is key was circular Quay for me when yeah. I... Yeah. <laughs> for the first two years know. you were in yeah. Australia. Can <laughs> <laughs> anyone <laughs> correct you? <laughs> Anyway, so I released uh, a, a released. It's it's basically a um, a little view that you can use as a uh, a keyboard accessory view. Oh, cool! Uh, and provides you with a, the ability to add keys, uh, like to the to the keyboard essentially, and it looks like the iOS keyboard. Nice. Um, which I used. I, I developed originally for progressions, and then thought, okay, well, this is probably useful for other people because. I put this particular feature off for a very long time because I thought, oh, it's going to be difficult. And it turns out I was very wrong. It's not difficult. It's, it's not difficult. Yeah. And now it's even easier because keyboard essentially Exists. takes care of all the, uh, all the um, hard work. Like it, it does, it organizes its views so that it kind of lines up and spreads the keys out over the, over the area of the view and stuff. Cool. Um, so it's, I mean, it's, it's very, uh, it's a very early kind of release and, uh, it could have a lot more done to it. Uh, cause you know, there's a couple of different keyboard styles and stuff like that, which it doesn't, uh, cope with at all. And so I released it, uh, on GitHub kind of quietly. Nice. And, uh, at your request and suggestion, I also, uh, put together a CocoaPod spec. And submitted that to CocoaPods, cool. which was pretty much immediately accepted. Was that what was that process like of creating a pod spec? And was uh, it straightforward. It was fairly straightforward. Um, you can. It actually has because CocoaPods has built into it the ability to, to uh, build the spec based on the code. All right. Somehow. So there's a command you can use. Yeah, it doesn't get it. Doesn't get everything. It doesn't get everything right. You have to go in and then you know, add add a f- bit, bits and pieces. But it gives you it gives you a blank template with a few things. Like it pulls out things like 
the version number and the and who built it and you know what the name of the project is and that sort of stuff. And it pulls all that out, builds a, builds a, a blank spec template, and then you open that up and you add bits and pieces. So you might add your license stuff. Uh, you also might add things like um, where your header files are, public header files, uh, you know, all that sort of stuff. So mm-hmm. you, you point, you give, you give it all those uh, points, and then, uh, well, I, I tested it, so I put it into a project, like a actually put it into the comic app because that was the thing I was building at the time, uh, and so it was easy just to add a view and throw throw in a text thing and build that and. Uh, um, there's two ways you can implement it. You can implement it by using a sub project, or you can use CocoaPods. And I'd already done the sub project with uh, with the example app that's built in to the project. And uh, so I added to I add. I already had CocoaPods in the comic app, so I built it in there, threw something in, and tested to make sure that it worked with CocoaPods, and it worked fine. Yeah, cool. Um, pointing to the you know the instance of the CocoaPods spec that was in the yeah. actual project repository and so once i was satisfied with that i um i forked the CocoaPods specs repository yeah added yours and then did added a mine request and put did a pull request yeah cool and it's it's really it's relatively easy to do um but it was it was very interesting and then like i've open sourced things before not nothing for uh for mobile development but i've done i've done one or two like javascript things that i've just gone okay well this might be useful to other people threw it up online tweeted about it Got a few, you know, retweets and stuff like that, uh, but nothing in the in the area, like even close to what I have gotten with with keyboard. So it's been well received. It's been very well received, which is fantastic. Good. And uh, you know, so I, and I've been, you know, slowly following the the, the counts of the because really the only way that you can tell that it's being, you know, that people are into it is by looking at how many people star it on GitHub and how many people fork it on GitHub. And I'm up to about 15 or so forks and a couple of hundred sounds, stars. Sounds like lots of people are interested. So, so it seems like there's a fair few people interested in it. And I think I think really the like the the, the thing that has really helped it was was CocoaPods by putting it into CocoaPods and because they tweet about uh, CocoaPods itself, like oh, right. they, they have a Twitter account yep. that tweets about the uh, about the you know the the new uh, Projects that are new, co- new pods. Have been yeah, it's an interesting point. So, CocoaPods is not just a a way of managing dependencies to make it easier to, to add links to projects you know about, but it's also sort of a discovery mechanism for yeah. new new code you might want to integrate. So, because uh, I remember in I think it was maybe episode two that we were talking about CocoaPods. Yeah, uh, and actually, the the CocoaPods guy tweeted at me. So. Thanks for listening. Uh, thanks for thanks for listening. And we're thanks glad for CocoaPods. We're, we're, we're glad you enjoy the podcast. Is that that guy on ADN that retweets everything? No, is that a different? No, guy? there was a there was a specific guy that actually like he built CocoaPods and he first of all CocoaPods retweeted the uh, tweeted about the episode that we talked about them in, and then they then the guy tweeted himself tweeted at me. You guys following that guy on ADN? I don't think so. The guy that like retweets every, everything. Yeah, like every new open source. Thing. Yeah, I think he tweeted it. I think he tweeted, retweeted me, but I've... Oh, cool. I've not. I will have to... You're, can you put good. a link to him in the show They're notes? not retweets or updates, but you'll get a good dozen of them a day. Yeah, nice. Okay. The guy's very uh, prolific. Is is he a guy or a bot? No, he's a guy, I think. Okay. Just do you want to throw, 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 throw the in. link in the show notes for us? Cool. 
uh, yeah, anyway, so, like, so Cocopods was, I think, uh, really important. And, you know, back to the episode two discussion where we were talking about whether or not Cocopods is good or bad. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, there's obviously a lot, still a lot of, uh, discussion about whether or not it's good or bad. I think, I think Cocopods itself, like whether or not it's good or bad to use it in your project, it's excellent as a discovery mechanism. Um, and talking about, you know, how we learn things like, mm. you, you know, you can, you can Google for, uh, f- for new, f- like for the issue, the solution to a problem, you know, if you, if you, if you want, you won't necessarily come up with anything because you'll probably come up with Stack Overflow things, uh, before you come up with, with actual, uh, open source projects. Yeah. yeah. But CocoaPods, like I've found so many more, uh, helpful open source projects that have been, you know, that I've been able to utilize rather than using my own stuff. Yeah. Uh, and writing my own stuff. Uh, Which be- I think because of it. P- personally, I think that's fantastic. So I know other developers have got different points of view about external dependencies and some people feel that there's a risk in that if you don't write something yourself then you're kind of you're linking yourself against some you're involving someone else in the success or otherwise of your project because uh the code that you're relying on may not always be there or may change or may let you down or you might end up running into a bug and not understanding it because you didn't write it and all of i've heard all of these arguments against not doing it yourself. And sometimes cynics might describe that as a bit of a not invented here syndrome. Yep. Um, and I, personally, I think I'm on the end of the spectrum where my first instinct as I'm doing something, if it seems a little bit like a bit of work, especially with Coco. Coco seems to be such a great framework where the built-in classes and, that you get do so much for you that most of the time when I'm writing lots of code, my first instinct is, um, have I misunderstood this? Have I missed something in the framework where it's actually already provided for me? Um, and often the answer is yes, there is actually something in the framework that already does it for me and I just delete heaps of my code and use that thing. And sometimes the answer is no, there's nothing in the framework, but there is an existing open source project where people have done that already. And so I guess I usually take that pause to sort of look, search something like CocoaPods and just say what's out there. I think it's also still important to sort of be a little bit critically minded about it and don't just immediately add right. that dependency and start using it, but right. think about how it fits with what else you've got. Yeah. So, an example of that uh, in, in my case is that for the comic app, uh, one of the things that I've had to deal with is that the titles and some of, sometimes uh, chapter descriptions come through as HTML text Uh and not like, you know, they don't have paragraphs and all that sort of stuff, but they do have like italics in them. And sometimes the italics is, you know, I, I tags and sometimes they're EM tags. And, uh, because, you know, because mostly it's done on the website. So, you know, on the website renders fine. You know, it's, it's HTML, works great in a web browser. Uh, but it's a little bit more difficult to do that, uh, to render that without a UI web view, yeah. uh, in like in a project like, you know, like, uh, this comic app. And so, one of the things that I had to do was I had to figure out a way of actually turning that into like an attributed string. Mm. And so, the first thing that I did was, okay, well, I don't want to write- this sounds like it's going to be a lot of work. I don't want to write that myself. I need to find a project that will, you know, that will just take the HTML string and turn it into an attributed string. Mm. Uh, and there's nothing- there's, I mean, there, there is- there are projects out there that do that, right? So, there's- there is a couple of uh, like, you know, attributed label um, type classes. Yeah. I think I came across one called Font Label. 
That was before okay. the attributed there was like, labels. I saw one like OH attributed label. TTT attributed, I think. TTT attributed. Anyway, so the like they they all include like label and they do you know they do markdown and they do HTML and they do all these other things and I didn't want that like right so because I'm building this on on six so I can just use a the built-in lab, like label uh, yeah, yeah label I don't need yeah you know I don't need the actual label class um I mean, and I- so I couldn't find anything so I did actually end up having to write something so rather than just willy nilly include you know some in- enormous project. Uh, that that tackles the problem for you know all of the possible scenarios. I just uh, I wanted to do something that just worked in this particular instance because I don't need to worry about uh, you know iOS five or iOS four. I just want you know just all I need to do is take that string, turn it into an attributed string, and be able to just chuck it in the label. Yeah. So you know, with some help of people on uh, Twitter, you know, pointing me in the right direction, I built a, a very simple. Uh, parser that goes through, finds a tag, f- figures out the attribute, throws the attribute on there, and moves yeah. on. And I think that's a really sensible approach. I think it's about identifying whether the existing open source libraries meet your need closely enough without doing, you know, because I, th- I think you're right. If, if you're adding a huge dependency to a multi-thousand line of code project just to use one method in it, right? that's like, yeah, overkill. It's a huge risk and yeah. for potentially little benefit. Um, so I guess it's a question of granularity and and whether something's fit for purpose. Um, and I think, yeah, personally, my approach is always have a look. And sometimes the answer is there's something, and sometimes the answer is you got to write it. But that's all. I've, that's all I've got on that. Um, so I had one other topic. Uh, I think it's a brief topic I wanted to discuss today. Uh, Caleb, did you have anything you want to cover off first? Or no? Okay. Well, I'll, I'll get into it. And this is. Uh, responding to a little bit of feedback um, from last episode's guest, uh, Russell. From the guest or about the guest? Feedback from the guest. Okay, for, for, right. Feedback from Russell. Awesome. Um, I'm not sure his feedback was specifically about this podcast or Coco podcasts in general. Right. Um, so, a criticism that has been made of Coco podcasts is that they can sometimes be too full of fluff and personality and people just discussing events of the day and how to pronounce place names, you know, random shit like that. Stuff, yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. Um, people's ages. <laughs> yeah, people's ages. <laughs> Here we go. Uh, and something that Russell said that he was keen to see in podcasts uh, is, you know, things, thing, little programming techniques or APIs or, um, that he may not be aware of uh, to learn about. So uh, I thought I'd share something that I enjoy using. Russell, if you're listening, you probably already use this technique. So sorry, I've got to keep trying harder to find something you haven't heard of. Um, but perhaps there's someone out there who hasn't come across this before, and I get a kick out of using it. So it's um, bitmasks. Have you guys used bitmasks yourself? Have I previously told you about how much of a kick I get out of using bitmasks? No. I think I think I've heard of them. I don't think I've ever used them. But I reckon you've both used them. As in being a consumer of an API that uses bitmasks. Right, okay. Because Apple used them a fair bit in the Cocoa APIs. Um, things, so basically a bitmask allows you to pass a number of options as a single parameter where the options may or may not be present. So things like, um, the auto layout, not auto layout, the strings and struts approach to layout. View resizing. Yeah, auto resizing. Auto resizing yep. masks, 
whether it order resides width, order resizes height, whether it's left minus left margin. Right margin. Yeah. Yep. So that's a bit mask, right? Where it's a single parameter, which is um the options mask. And what you pass is a series of um values that are ord together. So they've got a vertical pipe character to separate the multiple options you're wanting to set. And so it allows you to set either one or many of many potential options in a single call. Um, and to me, it kind of feels a little bit like magic in the way that it's actually implemented. Um, but I found a number of places to use it in my own code. Um, and it's not magic. It, it is actually quite straightforward. Um, it uses a little bit of maths, which is probably why it feels like magic to me because I failed year 11 maths. There you go. You've admitted, just, it again. you've admitted it again, yeah. yeah. I then did the simpler maths and did really well. No, okay, I'm moving on. Uh, <laughs> so the way you do it um, is you create a, an enumerated type uh, with values for each of the options you might want to um, set. So in the example, the most recent example I've used it um, was for an app I'm doing which displays stories that are all geolocated as pins on a map. And there are different categories of story. There are stories about people, there are stories about places, there are stories about landmarks, which is a special type of place, and stories about events that happened at a particular point in time that also happened to be geolocated. Um, and I wanted to be able to filter those pins and only display some of the more different combinations. So I thought an, an API that might be nice is uh, to be able to say, um, use a bit mask to represent which of those combinations of categories you want to set. Um, so I've got an enumerated type called story category, um, and it has um, four different category types within it. Um, and I don't know if you've used enumerated types before, but you just do like a type def enum, open brace, list your types, comma separated, and then close brace, and then list the name of the enumerated type you're defining. Um, and that's usually enough if you want to use them like in switch statements or um, just as ways of just distinguishing between two types of things. But if you're wanting to use them as a bit mask, you can go one step further and um, where you define each type, so within the curly braces, um, after you've declared the name, so in my case, a, a person category, a place category, a landmark category, an event category, um, you provide a value as well, which is a number that you want that type to have. Um, and you pick numbers that when represented in binary have just a single bit set on them. So in my case, I've got four. The first one I've set to be uh, the number one, which is 0001 in binary. The second one is uh, number two, which is 0010 in binary. Uh, the third one is four, which in binary is 0100. And the last one is eight, which in binary is 1000. So if you actually wrote these numbers in binary down, you'd see that they're all sequence of zeros except in each case, one of the zeros is set to like a flag being a one. So um, you've kind of got a single bit set as being a flag for each of the possible values. Um, and so the way the bit mask then works is you say that um, you write a, a method that takes as its argument um, a number or an int, um, and you set that number by oring together the values from that enumerated type. So if you all together do a bitwise operator or one and two, or binary zero, 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 one and zero, zero, one, zero, 
what you end up getting is a result where both of the bits that are set are set. Does that make sense? Yeah. So you think of. of each position in the binary digit as being a flag that can either be zero or one, and you've got a number where the fourth position is set to, to being on, and a number where the third position is set to being on. You do a, a bitwise OR of those two, and you get where a number with both the third and fourth digits are set to on. Do you know what that number is? Uh, no, okay. but it doesn't matter, because then in your code that is receiving this option, um, you take the number that's passed in and do a bitwise AND with each of the options that you want to determine whether or not it's set. So you say, um, you know, say this parameter is called options, you say if options AND category person, and that will return true if that bit is set in the options that's passed in. Um, so it just basically allows you to have a single parameter. Like you could write the exact same method as something that takes four or five parameters um, and pass in four or five bools. Um, or you could write it as something that takes a single options parameter and then use these bitwise operators to see if particular bits have been set on it. Um, okay. Anyway, so I thought I'd just share that technique as something that I learnt about by reading through Apple's code. Well, headers. So um, when you Xcode, if you option click on, no, if you Apple or command click on a type, it'll take you to the definition of that type. And it'll also do that even in the um, Apple's types and the foundation types. And it'll take you to the header file, which are all public. Um, and I kind of didn't understand the magic of these things that I was kind of joining together. And I was thinking, how does this work? And sort of saw what was going on there and then read a little bit about it. Um, yeah, and as I said, I get a kick out of using it because it seems like a neat... I, I'm a fan of things that are kind of strongly typed and to be able to have a... to kind of define a type for my parameters or options, which might otherwise just be a set of trues or falses or whatever. Um, yeah, it just feels kind of neat to me. I think other people have suggested using this because it uses the least amount of memory if you're passing... You know, if you're creating a complex data structure that has lots of um, trues or falses or lots of options, it would occupy more more memory. I don't think that's really a concern with the amount of memory that's available on devices now. Um, but I kind of find it a neater way to write the code and express what I'm what I'm doing. Is there a limit to how many parameters you only have four? Well so I don't think so. I think it's like this is testing my maths. Uh, I think you just keep coming up with a bigger number when represented in binary as so after And is there an easy way of doing that? Coming up with those numbers? Yeah. Uh, so it looks to me one, two, four, eight. Is that like just increasing in? This is base. Oh, you're really testing my maths now. I think binary is base two. Yeah, binary is base two. Um, but coming up with another integer that'll be the next binary so probably number that only has one bit set on it. I don't know. I just I would yeah, probably just use like a. I'm sure that that's where I got them from. Right. I got it from examples of code. Yeah. Um, yeah. Looping back to. <laughs> Russell's um, feed, original feedback, uh, the, the thread where he posted this was, as I said, it wasn't specifically about this podcast, but technical podcasts in general. There was a discussion on Twitter um, in response to a post someone wrote about um, the number of Coco-focused podcasts out there and the relative quality in this person's opinion of them. And one of the criticisms was that people just... Uh, randomly mention stuff without doing their research. Right. So, in this case, let's go do our research and add 
detailed information in the show notes to follow up on how you uh, define these enumerated types. I might even write yeah. up a little bit of an example. That would be uh, for uh, reference. That would be good. Yeah, if you can, if you can throw that together. Yeah, be happy to because uh, I enjoy using this technique. Yeah. Well, look, I think I think that's probably about it for the for today. Uh, you know, one of the things in that discussion was that you know podcasts are pretty long. Well, we try to keep ours under under an hour, and that's what we've done today. So uh, I think we'll wrap it up there. Uh, if you guys want to read any of the show notes, uh, any of the stuff that we've researched, uh, you can do that uh, on the website. The address for that is mobilecouch.co forward slash five, because uh, this is the fifth episode, I think. Yeah. This is episode five. Yes. Yes. Episode five. Uh, so if you would like to get in touch with us and tell us that, you know, that we're completely wrong um, or if, that we're completely right, uh, you can do that uh, on our website as well, mobilecouch.co forward slash contact. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us individually, you can get in touch with Caleb on Twitter. Uh, he is Thurston, T-H-R-S-N. Correct. Jake is J McMullen, J-M-A-C-M-U-L-L-I-M. And I am at Jellybean Soup. Uh, thanks guys for listening. This has been Mobile Couch. We look forward to talking to you probably next week. Bye.